FBI Studios. This is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. Ahoy, friends. You are tuned into the Friday follow-up for Season 12, Episode 47, Character, here on Truth and Justice. I'm Zach Weaver, and as always, I'm joined by Bob Ruff and Janet Varney. We are diving into the information that Bob presented this week about Robert and Christian's character. We also heard Bob break down the 1023 voicemail on the sector data, which I believe is critical information to this case. So after a quick break, the three of us are going to dive into your listener questions. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Sky Stream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Sky Stream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Sky Stream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday, 18 plus, terms apply. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, right off the gate, and we got a lot of, a lot to talk about. And uh, first of all, I'll say I ended up packing a lot more information into this episode than I thought I was going to, um, as I really, you know, I, I spent the time working on that video and then throughout the week was really going through everything with the uh, that 1023 voicemail call. And I think like they, I think it's a pretty damn big deal. Um and before we get into the questions, hopefully there are some questions about that. Also, I, were there any questions about – because I didn't see a lot of people talking about what I thought was another pretty big deal, which was the missing page from the Verizon. Um, is there, do I have some questions about that? A mm-hmm, couple questions, yeah. Good. That was a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. Sometimes when you do those episodes where there's just a lot of stuff and they don't – it's not necessarily about just one thing. Uh-huh. I think it's hard for – us, it's, it can be hard for me because I'll focus in on one thing that really sticks out to me and then I'll just be thinking about that and chewing on that and then I'll realize like, oh my God, it was the same episode that we also found out about the 1023 voicemail and that was the same episode right. where we listened to, you know, but yeah, that's a big deal. So what was your takeaways uh, from this episode? Man, I think that 1023 voicemail sector data is huge. And and uh, I, I guess I don't think about putting it together because you're just watching pins on a, on a map, right? So you're thinking they're here, they're here, they're here, they're here. They don't actually really think about the travel time. So to put that perspective that they are that far away, but then immediately 20 minutes later are at Robert's home. Right. Which means they had to directly go there. Mm-hmm. Why would they drive past Robert's house that far for him to check his voicemail to immediately just keep driving right back to Robert's house? Yeah. And and when you, when you piece it together with, there's that element of it, like there's no reason for them to be up there. I think if you, again, if you haven't watched the YouTube video on our YouTube channel with the sector data, it's worth the watch. I really think that mm-hmm. it is. It really breaks things down uh, and and it makes us much more understandable. But then there's also like what I think is a huge issue for the habeas is that Bodmer's drive test is 
it's invalid. It doesn't, he made the drive test to show how Robert could connect to what we now know is a sector that he never connected to. So it's, it's completely invalid. And I hope I made that clear in the episode where what I was saying is like, yes, is there a practical way that you and I in a discussion can say, well, yeah, but if they went this other weird route, then they could have touched it. That's true. But the fact is they were convicted. And one of the major elements that they were convicted on was the drive test that we now know is invalid. They couldn't have gone that way, which means they, that that should never have been presented to the jury. And it was. So I'm hope again, I'm not a lawyer, but, uh, you know, I've talked to a few of them and it seems like that that could be a huge, a huge, pretty significant issue when it comes to habeas. Janet, what did you? I'm oh, sorry, Zach, you had something. Well, I was going to say, and I think you touched on the episode, but I think it, the other great point that you said is it lines up with what they said they did. Yeah. yeah. And, and not only that, like at the time that they're saying they did this, they don't know that this phone evidence exists. They right. don't know that there's sector data. And I honestly, I up until literally three weeks ago or whatever, I didn't know what sector data was. I knew mm-hmm. that there was towers and I knew that they could see where you were, but I didn't realize they could actually directionally tell where you were. Yeah. And this is, you know, 20 years later. Yeah. 20, 18 years later, 17, whatever it is, yeah. 17. I'm not good at math. I don't know if you know this about me or not, but yeah, you were pretty close, but you know, I don't, I didn't know that you could directionally tell which side of the tower you were on. So th- I think that's a big deal. Yeah, if I was trying to create an alibi, I wouldn't tell you what side of the tower I was on because I didn't know you needed that. Well, yeah, and most people certainly didn't know, and and I guarantee you, Robert and Christian didn't know it was a thing. So that like that's like that point you just made when you piece it together. What investigators should have been, and this is when you this is the problem when you have a theory based investigation and a suspect based investigation, is they were trying to find a way to make the evidence fit their theory, and they came up, and it turns out the way they came up because they they had limited information. The way they came up with doing it was invalid. But if you were to do it properly, where you're like, okay, tell me what you did. In a very nonchalant way, when you listen to Robert's first interview, he's like, yeah, well, he came over. Uh, I never really committed to this to this hike. We were headed down to church. I called the church on the way, and they said that there it was too late for mass, so we ended up going back to Christian's house. Then we went over to James Workman. We played paintball. Then uh, my cousin had texted me and said he needed chapstick, so we went to the AMPM and went home. Then you look at okay, now we have their sec- the full call detail report and sector data. What does this show? Well, they said they went from here. Okay, it tracks there, tracks there. Here's the call he said he made. Here's the route he said he was going. They said they went back to Christians. It shows they passed seventy four. They're heading back to Christians. We have this dead period, but when it comes back on, where are they at? It doesn't show they were at. I should James Workman. But it shows if they were at James Workman, that's the sector that they would have hit right there. And then he says he went home, he went to AMPM and went home. And 20 minutes later, he's at home. It fits completely with exactly what they said when they didn't know anything about this evidence. But again, the issue was they had already decided it was Robert and Christian. They had already decided what their theory of the case was. And so they tried to find ways to make the evidence fit their theory instead of just going looking at what the evidence was showing us. Janet, what was your what were your thoughts on the episode? Well, I agree with everything that, that Zach said and, and what you've been saying. I think, you know, this is just one of those points in the casework where it's real bittersweet because I want that video to have been played at the trial. I want mm-hmm. all of that information to have been laid out as beautifully as I feel it was laid out by you in these last couple of episodes, as you've been crunching through the data and, you know, it's just those pieces that fit back together where I hope that it means good things for the future. And I believe that it does. But it's also like this was in the file and this whole everything you said could have been cleanly laid out 
at the trial. Yeah. And I think that's a big deal. And so that's it's very bittersweet because it's like, yes. Oh, God, this is not new information in that it shouldn't have to be new information, if that makes sense. I feel the same way. There's like this weird mix of like, like I feel very much like excited about the fact that, you know, as, as we've always said, like you just keep just picking away at details and details. And sometimes it's rough and sometimes it's not exciting or entertaining. And there's a lot of stuff that are just dead ends, but you just keep looking at every little thing. And it's like, here's the thing. And it broke it open and it shows like, okay, like this again, in my opinion, it's in like they're alibi. They're the amount of mental gymnastics you have to go through to make it even possible for them to have been up at the crime scene are way beyond ridiculous at this point. So when you look at that, it's like, yes, we've, we found it. I don't know, but I certainly expect and hope that this all comes out in the habeas with just all this stuff that we've discovered over, over this time with, you know, obviously it would be different experts that can break it down, not in a YouTube video, but in a way that they can be used in, in court. But then the other side of that is they've been in prison for five years and they've been in jail for seven years. You know, Christian's been away from his, from, from his little daughter the whole time. They've both been away from their wives and their families through the, through all of this for something that was sitting there the entire time. It's just, it's just heartbreaking. And with that, let's go ahead and jump into these questions. Yeah, great. Okay, let's start with, I'm actually going to kind of move backwards a little bit with the order that things were presented in the episode. I hope that's okay. There were a lot of comments and questions about some of the information that was in that Claire interview. And I know that you had mentioned that maybe you hadn't necessarily intended to play it or that it would have been more of a bonus, but it came out all in that one episode. But I, too, thought that there was some some interesting stuff in there. So I was glad that the listeners picked up on a bunch of stuff, even some stuff I didn't notice. So I want to jump into that first. Kristen uh, wants to know if LeClaire mentioned the Heinzes in the yeah. interview. Is that a conversation you ever heard happen in the files no. or anything? So that interview came up. I, I talked to – so th- this process this week, as I told you guys when we were recording Wednesday, I was still working on the video. I've got to put something together. I had a listener who had who had said, I really want you to to share – all the stuff she had said that she wanted to be to be shared on the podcast. So I actually reached out to that listener and was like, here's your chance. What do you want? And she gave me a list of things uh, that she wanted to hear. So I put them out there for her. And one of the things was Claire's interview where she mentions the that they were out there shooting. So it was like literally final hour. And that's a long interview. Mm-hmm. I'm like, let me grab the interview, clean up the audio the best I can because it wasn't great. It still wasn't great, but it was worse before I w- worked on it. And then it's like, I got to listen through real quick to make sure I can redact anything like phone numbers and addresses, birthdays, things like that, and then send it off. And so so by the time I put the episode out, I hadn't really listened to much of it. I was just t- took a couple little notes. But yeah, there was some inf- interesting stuff in there. And yeah, the he- I have no idea who the Heinzes are or why that question was asked. Uh, but that is that is top of my list to start looking into to try to figure out who the hell that is the Ellis's we I've mentioned before. There's two. I don't know if I've mentioned before. There's two different Ellis's that live. And I think we heard it. Didn't we hear it in the Jim? I played Jim Ellis's interview, right? Where he talked about the other Ellis's that are that, that live in the neighborhood. No, I think we've brought up Jim Ellis and whether or not you played his interview so many times. I'm pretty sure I did because I, w- I remember I started doing the other Ellis's. I don't remember that. I started doing in the YouTube chat. Let me know, because if not, I need to get him out there because I, I was working on the Javier testimony. And then I realized I need to put some background out first before you hear the Javier episode. Uh-huh. 
so then I did an episode where we heard from, I think, Randy Paulson and Jim Ellis and I think Zach. So what episode was that, Zach, you're looking at there? 44. 44. So it would be the one before the sector data. Okay. I don't remember him mentioning other Ellis's, but I could, I mean, I could have just missed that spot. Yeah, it could have been. So anyway, what I'm getting at is that there's Jim Ellis, those Ellis's, then there's a different group of Ellis's. That we're going to talk about more later that also lived in the neighborhood. So I don't know even okay when you hear LeClaire asking about if they know the Ellis's. When I heard that, I assumed he was talking because she was talking about Kim yeah. Ellis. Yeah. And he's like, so the Ellis's live. So I, but, but I need to listen back again to see if that's what he was talking, like clarifying that or if he's talking about the other Ellis's. And then he mentions these Heinz and I don't know who the Heinz are. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard that name before. So huh. I, I want to do a little more digging looking looking into that. Okay, cool. Oh, so, okay. So it was, yeah. So Jim and Randy, when they were talking about their partners and when their, whether their wives went up with their, they're with them and that, that was all part of that. That episode where we heard Barbara Wright and all that. Got it, yeah. got it, got it. Yeah. I don't remember the um, um, reference to other Ellis's, but Clay says, uh, there's one thing that Claire stated that really piqued my interest. And I'm so glad, Clay, that you brought this up. I really, this, I, I absolutely kind of stood up and took notice. She stated that Becky was acting differently since Friday. The same has been said for Vicky. Didn't she cancel mm-hmm. that trip and everything? It almost sounds like something happened that Friday or leading up to it. Claire assumes it's because of the hike with Robert. Maybe that's why she was being quiet or not like, getting too into. I'm now adding to what Clay's saying, not wanting to talk about that particular thing. But uh, Clay says it sounds like something involving at least Becky and Vicky or just Becky. And she confided with Vicky. Becky was maybe even paranoid shopping at Target. He's just wondering, like, was she nervous about running into someone or, you know, was there something going on that she didn't feel merited talking about, but that was happening that made her feel like she needed to spend more time at home? Um, all of those things. I don't know. I just thought those were interesting moments. Yeah, it, it was. And and again, I think we need to re- revisit this, too, It's it, at some point, because there was a lot of things in there that there was that also. Now we're hearing that Claire felt like there was something going on with Becky and it's hard because this, so she was interviewed on the 18th and we didn't hear any of this and then she's interviewed a week later and now there's all this other stuff. So, so some of it, you got to, we have to think about how much has seeped into, you know, we always talk about those malleable memories and people's talking to other people. Yeah. Talking to other people about stuff. So, so, and how much is real. And then also like, we know that she had just broken up with Jacob at that point. Yeah. And then she was talking to, was it that gray guy? She was talking to him quite a bit yeah. and then was talking to Robert. There was a lot going on there. But also we heard, and you probably have questions about this, but we, we heard her talking about that they were growing. That that. Oh, that's definitely in here. Becky was John's pot supplier. Yeah. And it was everybody's pot supplier, sounds like, because everybody we talked to said they got it from Becky. That's what I think Javier said that. Claire said that. Claire said that John got it from Becky and that they also were at least trying to grow. So that was that was new information. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll, I'll shout out the folks who who brought that up. Uh, yeah. I, in fact, I was going to say uh, right next up, I had Jordan and Nicole. They definitely both mentioned that we thought this was the first time that we heard that Becky was supplying John with weed. That was very interesting. We'll talk more about the the growing in a second to see if there's anything you want to add to that. But Chris had asked, sorry if it's been gone over before, did we ever get an answer to all the spare money Becky apparently may have had? It was stated she only had that one weekend job, but seemed to have a, f- a fair bit of spare income. Talking of, of drugs this week made me got me thinking about it again. And yeah, I thought about that too, Chris. And I did think that it was interesting that Claire did say that Chuck would help her along as well. Yeah. I don't know that you necessarily saw that show up in her 
bank accounts for what you had were actually able to look at. No, but. there's not a lot going on. So it seems like she was working. And we didn't really, I don't think I posted her bank account stuff, but there's not, she doesn't have any significant amount of money in her banks or in her bank account or anything. But yeah, you know, we've heard before that, you know, she gave him that car and that she was paying all these bills. And then we hear again from Claire that you know, she's like lending her parents, you know, her mom money. Yeah. And, and somebody in the chat had mentioned that. As far as the growing the growing pot, which I know you say more questions on that she tried and failed. I was that wasn't I need to go back and revisit that because it sounded like they were still like they had tried and it didn't work. And then I thought it sounded like they were but they were like trying again to grow. So I don't I don't know exactly what was going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Janiah brought that up, too, that the idea of Becky's parents owing her money, that there that could be important. And uh, well, it does speak to what we what we noticed in in John and Vicky's bank records that were said it looked like. They were really struggling with money there in the, you know, in the last few weeks, month up to their death after the refinance of the house and all that stuff that they were, that money seemed to be pretty tight. And then we hear that they actually owed Becky money. Yeah. Yeah. Kathy uh, brought up and and Jeremy had sort of a question and comment about this, too. This idea of the investigators ever pressing harder on the alleged hike to determine whether it really was a hike or if that's code for something else, if it's, you know, um, because they're. Are these different conversations that the investigators have with friends of Becky who are like, no, she didn't hike. Not really. That's not really what it was. Um, and that's not necessarily something we can know. But, you know, it doesn't seem like the, the hike was never like a huge focal point of them trying to really dissect what that could have meant in my my impression of it. And it seems like these yeah. guys agree that it was just like it was a hike. It wasn't a hike. This is the most I feel like we heard them talk about it maybe a couple of other times where they're like what does that mean where was she going how far back you know all of that and of course kate mentioned the van in the back of becky's house and we heard that we've heard that before that there is this old burnt out van or something like that right well i was confused about that because when i heard it what i thought of was the van they used to haul trash yeah, that's what the that's what the confusion was in the interview. But we've definitely heard that there was like an old van way back out in the desert where people yeah. would like hang out and smoke and stuff. Was that Nick Crum that told us about that van that was way back there where they used to go back and? Uh, yes, and maybe Bo or someone. I'm sure someone in the chat remembers more. But yeah, I feel like Nick Crum when we interviewed him when he was on the show talking to me. Yeah, that he uh, he mentioned that place that's kind of back in behind their house. Mm -hmm. Uh, where they would go back and do bonfires, that that's where there was a van. Back yeah, there. and Claire thought they must have been, like you said, talking about the van in the driveway, but they clearly had heard by then that there might be an old van out there that people used to hang out in. If someone someone listening has time, and I'll try if I have time to do it, but should look at in the the Google Earth, the Wayback Machine to go look at, you know, I wonder if it's if it was there long enough that we can see that old van back there in like the 2006 time frame. Yeah, I see some um, some stuff in the chat, too, about uh, about the journal. And that came up again in the, the follow up questions as well. Just, you know, I know we've talked about it before, but that's that's one of the more frustrating things for people is these references to this journal and diary and just know nothing in discovery or anything. Yeah, I know it's, it's referenced that it was taken, but I don't see the, the, only, the closest thing I have to a journal is just notes that she had wrote in like her biology book or whatever, right. or like her notebook. And it's just like little like notes from class and then like notes she was passing back and forth with people from class. Right. There's not like a journal. Yeah. On some level, there's part of me that's like, I maybe there wasn't anything useful in it and that's good. And we don't have to pry into her personal thoughts because that brought, came back up for me when you were talking about letters, which we'll get into a little right. bit later in this follow up. But just that whole idea of like, what what are we supposed to be seeing and 
that can be uncomfortable. So, but yeah, mm-hmm. if there's if there's important information in there, obviously it would be really important to have. Jeremy says also, uh, is there anything in the file to indicate why the investigator asked about finding a grow operation? Yeah, I don't. I, my guess is just because they've kind of heard rumors because somebody else we had heard in an interview had mentioned that they thought John was growing up there. And there's there's people in the chat that are saying it doesn't have to be a grow operation. It could be a couple plants for personal use. But I think I thought he was saying like he was asking, like, could they have stumbled on someone else's? And maybe I misunderstood oh, that. Yeah. I took that as a separate thought, which is of like, could they have stumbled on someone else's up there? Oh, yeah, yeah. And and, and it's very possible as far as the from the, the YouTube chat, people are asking about. If they had, uh, you know, a, a grow operator, could, could, I would almost assume based on that property that if they if they were growing, that it was probably inside, you know, they would have burned up in the fire. But also, I don't know where they would have put it inside the house. But from what I've seen from friends that have that have grown because it's now legal here in Michigan to grow. What I've seen from friends that grow is it doesn't take a lot of room. I mean, you could do it in a fairly condensed area. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, it doesn't there's no evidence to support that it was in the garage. But I mean, it doesn't take a lot of room. To do it right and and have a, a fairly substantial amount. I mean, you're not providing tons of people, but to have a a handful of plants and provide a substantial amount, it doesn't take a ton of room. Mm-hmm. But it does seem that at least at that point on the 25th of September, the police were still, or at, th- at that point, they were very interested in that angle at least, mm-hmm. which makes you it makes you wonder if they know if they know something more. Like just like asking about the Heinz, like who's that? What what, what do they know that we don't know? Sure, sure. Uh, Jennifer says, uh, kind of putting some different things together, Jennifer says, so we have an area of disturbance where it looks like something was recently dug out of the ground, a wheelbarrow with clumps of mud in it, as well as Becky's body. And now Claire says that John and Becky were growing weed. Also, Claire said Becky was planning to spend more time at home, which makes me wonder about the time required to process the plants. I wouldn't think they were growing enough to be worthy of murder, but what are your thoughts on all of these things potentially being connected? Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, it's all things I think we need to put a pin in as a because that. The one thing that we're lacking in this, and I see people in the chat, and I see it every week on the everybody's asking, well, if, if not them, then who, right? Who's the suspects? And like, and as I've said, we have not – this phase of the investigation is looking at the case against Robert and Christian. Right. When we're done with that, then we'll start looking into see if there's other suspects. But but in this year of doing this case and all the victimology we've done, we've yet to identify a motive for anyone. Right. Right. So So that's why like the fact that they may have been growing – May have stumbled onto a grow operation somewhere. Becky is the one that seems to be buying the pot and supplying it to everyone. That maybe there's something there. I don't think the crime scene supports the idea of Becky being the target of, of this uh, for all the reasons we've explained uh, ad nauseum. But yeah, we have to th- be thinking about all those things still when we when we get into it. But at this point, I can't tell you who the suspects are because I haven't looked for any suspects yet. We're just looking at the case against Robert and Christian, but. That's going to be a huge thing is and I feel like that's when the light bulb goes unless just besides just like checking that, you know, doing more DNA testing, running through CODIS or genealogy and finding out who the hell touched her socks. Short of that, I think with a light bulb moment will be if we find the thing that's like, oh, that's why they were killed Mm -hmm. because that and that's why Jim Clemente always says to focus so much on victimology, because if you can figure out why that particular person was chosen in that particular place at that particular time. It's like shining a mirror back onto the offender that did that. Right. Uh, And so hopefully if we can figure that out, that'll be a a, a light bulb moment. Yeah. I think for some of us, you know, because when we were listening to those early interviews and because we were trying to glean as much information as we could about the victims and through that, some of those questions were coming up about maybe people who could be suspects. We've touched on that. 
So it feels incomplete because that wasn't really the focus of that. But it's impossible not to kind of have those conversations, which we've had in and follow ups and all that when we talk mm-hmm. about the Rollins and the Austins and stuff like that. So yeah. um, I understand the idea of feeling like that we started on that, but didn't really dig all the way into it. But I also understand how you've described the order and, and that that's something that we'll be focusing in on later. Yeah. Peter says, does Bob believe there is more evidence of John or Vicky possibly being a target than what's already been presented? Or does he feel it's been too long since the crime to find that connection? We just kind of talked about that. But shout out to you, Peter, for, again, kind of trying to find those connections and hope that there is more information out there that will help us understand better exactly who was the target and why. Let's just briefly touch on the FBI investigation. Of course, it comes up in the most detail we've heard Yeah, in this interview with Claire. Kristen and Tracy are wondering again, you know, I know we you've said you haven't found anything. I'm sure you would tell us if anything had come up yet with that FBI investigation, anything further. No, I don't know anything more than you guys know, but I think that we got it sounds like we got our answer to what that investigation was from Claire. If what she says is accurate, that they were investigating an accusation sounds like made by, by Tiffany that she was assault, sexually assaulted by Ron when she was younger is the way that it was described by Claire. I'm not adding what someone told me on Facebook, right? That's what she said, right? Yeah. No, I, I believe that's exactly what's. Yeah, I went through and read the transcripts just to make sure I was hearing things right. And I'm I'm pretty sure that that's what happened. And by the way, I would say I would just add to that, um, not passing judgment on what any of that means, because it's all at this point, sort of third party people talking about it without the actual right. people at you know in play it's very it must have been really uncomfortable for like for that interview with claire i would say to me it sounds like bump and Sarah is a thousand percent the lead detective i mean to to yeah. me my perception of that interview is bump and Sarah's in charge he's asking the questions he's talking about it like it's his case and he's very good friends with ron so i thought that was interesting that all that stuff kind of came up and i think he still was because he also is the one that requested robert he filed the warrant and received the 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 response from Verizon for Robert's cell phone record. So so we're talking about a week after. So and I think what Leclerc had said was like within two weeks, he had shifted into being the lead investigator. Yeah. But unfortunately, we have Ron's very good friend was the lead investigator through the most critical time of the investigation, which was that first week when we should have been you know when 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 all this evidence that's missing. Uh, should have been gathered. That's when Bump was still. I call him Bump I, as though he's my friend. I just what they called him. <laughs> that that uh, I, I did the same thing. I made a little note and I was like Bump, and then I was like, I guess I don't. Yeah, I don't it's too personal. Bump and Saro, Detective Bump and Saro, was still in charge at that point. So regarding the couple of things that came up uh, came up for Javi in the conversation, um, Kristen says, "Did we know that Javi's phone was off on Monday morning? It's been a minute since we talked about those phone records. It wasn't off. Okay." So that was Claire said that she thought the phone was off, but we see in the phone records, it, he just didn't answer, which we assume he was sleeping because like Claire had called him. He didn't answer it. And then we see his like first call, I think, of the morning was to Claire returning, returning her call. But no, her, his phone was not off. OK. Yeah, I think she said that he said that it was off, but that doesn't really mean anything. That might just be what she's, you know, how she remembers it. And then just clarification on timing. Um, Kate mentioned uh, that Claire did say she told Javi she thought it was maybe around 11 and that he was really upset. Um, but that timing doesn't really match with the phone records and what we know. Right. Right. Yeah, it was it was I from memory. It was like around 830 in the morning, I think, when 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 Javier got up and called 
Claire, and then he calls. I think he tries to call Becky. He calls Robert. Uh, there was yeah, he called Nick Corline. He calls several people, and then it was, I think it was around eleven is when he actually went up there. Just to clarify, getting into just briefly touching on the the character material that came up, help us clarify because Sarah asks about Chris, uh, Christian's letters being pulled and used as evidence, and then again it's calling up Becky's journal for a lot of people because of the the yeah. letters coming up. And asking about limits to what can be used as evidence. So can you just go through for us again the difference between finding something, having something in discovery versus talking about it during the trial for the jury to hear and where these pieces of evidence fall into that? Yeah. So the police are, you know, they're gathering everything about everyone. So like when they found those letters, it was because they executed a search warrant on Christian's house and they took everything they thought might be relevant. And then the prosecutor then decides first, the first level is what they think will be relevant for trial. And I and I don't believe that those letters even made that cut. I'm not, I, I have to double check through all the pretrial stuff to see if there was something about, but I don't think it even made that cut because they had to know that it wouldn't be let in. And then there'll be motions before the court, which is what I need to try to go through all the pretrial stuff where the defense, once the, that discovery comes where the defense might say, we're filing a motion saying, you know, that this evidence can't be used because of relevance in, in, in that case. And in most cases, the, you know, stuff like that, that is when, when the purpose of it is to try to make the defense, to try to paint the defendant in a bad light to the jury with stuff that has nothing to do with the crime, that is not allowed in court. I think the term they use is it would prejudice the jury. So there's nothing in that. Le- like, for example, let's say in the letter he was, you know, he mentioned Becky's death and, and mentioned something. I mean, by the way, if you didn't read them and all those letters, Becky's never mentioned. Robert's never mentioned. It's literally letters between him and Jackie and him talking about what he's doing at boot camp. That's the entirety of all of those letters. Uh, so, so, but let's say he had said something about, oh, that night that Becky, you know, that Becky died and this and that, that information may be able to use in court. But if it's just like, if they want to be like, well, he said this about the lunch ladies. So, you know, saying that, that, that they're fat, black and look like convicts. And we think that might make him look racist. And so we're going to show that to the jury so that they, even though you're dealing with three, three white victims. You know, that won't be allowed in in court. It, had they presented it or the, the defense had filed a motion not to use it, I can almost guarantee with with almost 100 percent certainty, a judge would say, no, it's not relevant. And that's like the argument that keeps coming up, right? It is relevant. It is relevant. It's like it's literally legally not relevant. Right. It has nothing to do with the crime at all. And you're not allowed to. Try to just make somebody look bad because what the jury is supposed to be looking at and what we are supposed to be looking at when we're trying to figure out what happened here is actual evidence of the crime. Like so sector, the sector data we covered, for example, like looking at the phone data, is it possible to have them been there for them to have been at the crime scene? That is relevant evidence. Something written in a letter about a lunch lady is not relevant evidence. Even if it was, even if he like wrote something truly racist, like, like, like they're all a bunch of N words or, you know, something, something like that. 
it might mean he's a shitty guy and, and a racist, but it still doesn't have anything to do with the facts of the case. And so that, so, and I hope, I hope I understood the question and answered it. What, what you were looking for as far as from what's gathered to what's used in court. Yeah, definitely. Um, Emily says, why did neither lawyer for them request separate trials? Was there one jury for both of them? I'm going to have to answer that question next week because okay. I, I did see that come in and then I got distracted because I wanted to check with the family and see if anybody – because my assumption – this is just just my assumption. My assumption would be that the defense would be pushing for separate trials because if Robert was tried by himself, the business card – would not you know that, that that has no effect on him. Yes. He has his DNA is not on the business card. It's not up there at all. And then on Christian's side, Robert's cell phone, you know, they could try to but but, but if neither one of them is going to testify against each other, it would be har- much harder for the state to to secure those two convictions separately. I would assume the defense wanted separate trials and the state wanted the, wanted them tried together. Uh I do, do ultimately they were tried together with one jury mm-hmm. for both of them. Yeah. So, yeah. So so that would just be something that a judge would say, like, well, that it, this is totally entangled. The two things are totally entangled. So we're going to have to keep it together because one argument relies on the other kind of. Right. On another level. And I, I have absolutely no basis for this, but it wouldn't surprise me if the guys were like, we're in it together, buddy. <laughs> like like yeah. their their attorneys could have been like, we have to push for this. And they would be like, no, dude. This happened to both of us together and we want, we would rather sit next to each other. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So uh, just last piece of this, uh, talking a little bit more about the phones. Um, Carl had a question. Uh, he says, I understand this goes to the video. I understand the video shows how the guys could have been on the route you show for the 709, 710 and 713 calls. And the video shows how it matches their statement. Just wanted to clarify that if you looked at just those three calls in a vacuum, with the cell data we have, including the sector, sector data, could they also possibly have been on 74 or headed towards 74? Just trying to understand whether you believe your scenario is most likely or you believe the sector data and coverage area for each call eliminates them entirely from being on 74, including just those three calls in a vacuum. I can tell you, with, with just, yeah, with those three calls in a vacuum, it 100% eliminates them from being on 74. And the re, and, and, Add in the 706 call. I don't remember. I don't think that was on his list. No, it's not. So, and the reason the 706 call is important is because the 706 call shows that they were still west of the intersection to Highway 74, and the 713 call shows that they were east of the intersection of Highway 74. So, really, if you look to, because remember the, the 709 and 710 call, those those that's a different phone. That's Christian's phone. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at just, and we don't even have the sector data and they have different phone, different antennas, everything, everything there. Oh, got so it. So if you're looking point. at Roberts, his last two calls at 706, he is east or excuse me, west of the tower, west of the intersection to turn on Highway 74. And then the 713 call, he's east of the tower and east of the turn onto Highway 74. And that sector has zero coverage on Highway 74 anywhere. But in the thing, so that I think answers the question. Mm-hmm. But also, it's important to point out that you can't look at those really in a bag. Like it, it's important to to put them all together, and that's why in the recap I did on the video, I use let's look at just Robert's phone where we have all the sector data mm-hmm. because you see 
Here's calls where he's at the sector that covers his house. Right. Here's the call at 653 where he's moved because now he hits sector three. And then here is the 659, seven o'clock call and the 701 call where he's still on sector one of 707. So we know he's up there on, on highway 111. And then the 701 call where he starts on sector one of 707, switches to sector two of 705. So that's when we know, like you can you you can literally track exactly their movements, and then you can even take that data and put it into Google Maps or Apple Maps and show, okay, how long does it take to get from here to here? And it'll show you, like it takes about seven minutes, and then you look at where does the sector data show they are right here. Those two places align that fits, and then the seven hundred six call, the fact that the, you know there's a two and a half minute call there. So yeah, when you when you when you piece all that together, you very clearly see the route where they were traveling. Great. Makes sense. Kristen says, could Robert's voicemail, and here we get into this missing page that uh, was uh, kind of a big deal when you mentioned it in the episode, could Robert's voicemails be somewhere in the file and they haven't been found yet? Or could you do a FOIA request for them? Um, And Richard adds, you know, what could have been in those voicemails? Do you have any theory, knowing that it's speculation at this point, is there anything you can imagine would cause that page to be removed for a reason? I do have theories on that. And Uli, I see you in the chat. I'm going to respond to you after I handle this. Okay. It comes out as conspiracy theory and all this. But yeah, I think the obvious allegation or suspicion from this would be that those voicemails hurt the state's case or hurt the investigation. I don't think there's any way that Verizon got an order from a judge that ordered them to produce voicemails that they would then respond and one, not produce the voicemails and two, if they could not produce the voicemails, not explain why they could not produce the voicemails. So, and then you couple that with, There's a page clearly missing from the response that tells me, listen, if I, if I had to come up with a speculative hypothesis, my guess would be, it would say something like the voicemails we've copied onto a compact disc and we've mailed that to you guys for the audio. Now, again, hundred percent speculation on this point. I'm not at all saying this is what happened. I'm just like working through ideas in my mind. Like why would that page be missing and why would the voicemails not be there? Right. And Let's say that happened and let's say they checked, they they listened and like Becky had less voicemails at 713 and was like, dude, what the hell? You said you'd be here by seven. Where are you? And then she left a voicemail at 727 to Robert's phone and it was like, fuck you then. I don't want to talk. I, I don't want to talk to you. And so, and so, you know, you, you know, th- this other guy's here anyway or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever it may say. Something, uh, if there was something on there that was like, well, that hurts the case against them. That could all exist in the police file all the way up to 2014 when they're arrested. And then as they start to prepare for trial, now they have to give discovery to the the defense. So at that point, so make sure what I'm saying here, it's not like Bumpincero back then was like, oh, well, I want it to be Robert and Christian. So I need to, I, I don't like in this imaginary world I'm describing, that wouldn't be the case. It would be the district attorney's office in 2014 that was like, okay, we got a case against them. We've arrested them. 
they're going through the file and like, oh, well, shit, that's not going to. And it may not even be like clears them, but like, oh, that's if the jury hears that, this is going to be very difficult. So let me let's just lose this CD and not include it in discovery and then be like, well, shit, right there. It says that the CD exists. So let's just pull that page out, too. And it also could just be. Well, I can't think of an innocuous reason why they would remove a page from the document and why. But but maybe there's some version of an innocuous reason why it's there. So I just want to be clear that it could be anything. But to me, that's that's certainly what seems to especially when you add in the fact that we know they had the sector data, they misled the jury, they misled the defense about about the sector data. It certainly seems like they have no problem trying to hide stuff that's not going to help their case. Um, and and I, I promised Uli I would come back real quick. Um, Uli said, uh, were the calls too long for the spots where coverage exists, considering the fact that they were driving? No. So, Uli, the um, the 706 call, you'll notice like on my map as you like time it out that you know where I did the little graphic, it seems like they were getting out of the 705 Sector 2 coverage area at the end of that and into Sector 1. There's a couple things there. There are, I think, three stoplights right there. So that would could slow them down along that path. And then we do have the overlapping coverage, too. So like if they were still on sector two and they were coming into the area where sector one and two overlap. And then and within seconds of coming into that area, they hung up. They could hang up before the the phone made the switch over to you know, like if they had driven another 25 more seconds. It may have switched over to sector one because it got out of the overlap area. But I, I believe the phones will stay connected to the tower that they're on for as long as they can before they'll make make that switch. So the, so you have the stoplights, you have the overlapping coverage right there. And and I also just want to, again, point out why I'm saying it because people are like, well, what about then the overlap coverage of uh, Sector 1 on Highway 7? Again, it's a different – there is overlap from Sector 1 over to the Sector 2 area, but it's the range that's the problem on Sector 1. And that's why in the video I laid out the gladiator and he did, there was like three different tests that he did drive tests for sector one. And in all of them, it, show, it doesn't show not one of them shows dominant coverage. One of them just shows the coverage that sector one does not touch 74. There's no, there is no overlapping coverage of sector one onto 74. So I want to make that clear. And just in case I'm not talking about the right thing with you. As far as them driving to – now, where there is an issue is with the state's theory. If you look at Christian's connections to Tower 523, one, as I mentioned on the episode, the sequence is wrong because the first place he could have possibly touched 523 would already be at Tower 745, um, which there's lots of problems with that. you got a little tiny cell, and that is too small of an area for two minutes of phone call to happen. So that's problem one with those calls being on 74 with, the, with Christian's 523 tower calls. Uh, and, and then you have the fact that where that little blurb of possible coverage is, is right smack in front of sector two of tower 745. That would be an extremely strong signal right there. So for it to connect to a tower eight miles away um, with a tiny little blurb is unlikely. But then the sequence is also a problem there because if that's where he hit 523, you got to go four minutes further to the south when Robert connected to Tower 707 Sector 1 that doesn't go anywhere near there, nowhere even close to there. It's impossible for that to be. So I hope that answers what you're asking. Great. Uh, Sarah asks, if an account holder deletes their voice messages, does the phone company still have a copy of them or are they gone? The If the, if the user deletes their messages, is that what they're asking? 
Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer to that. It sounds like they would still have them. And I'm only basing that off of the conversations LeClaire has with Tiffany about Becky's voicemails. Because, you know, he was upset because she had canceled the account. And then when they called Singular to get the voicemails, they said, once they cancel the account, then we wipe them out. So it sounds like they would still have access to them, even if the user deleted them on their end, I think. But I don't know that for sure. Gotcha. Gareth says, talking about and, and shouting out your your logical and convincing arguments about how likely unlikely it was that the two guys were involved. We talk a lot about the burn expert and how concrete that time is based on her experience, her expertise um, Mm -hmm. and all of that. And Gareth is saying, you know, would this be a scenario in which let's say the guys do get a new. This is a lot of like this happens. So this has to happen. And then this would have to happen for this to have to happen. But say so Gareth is, I think, saying if the guys get a new trial, couldn't the state just find a different expert to talk about the burn body, that burn body evidence differently and then find a different cell expert to make whatever and, and, and create a new scenario in which they make the data fit as they would like to see the timeline be adjusted for a second trial. Like, is this all so manipulatable and malleable that they could just kind of create a new scenario that made that they felt they could make sense to the jury? No. Um, and because this is we're talking about, could they try that? But you'd have to find an expert that's willing to risk their entire reputation to come up and lie on the stand. Now, let's look at the cell phone evidence first. Could an expert come up and what they would have to do is say for an incoming call, you can use the initial cell face for location, which is not true. Mm-hmm. No one will agree that like, the, like the, the defense could put up 25 experts ask, after that to show that that's not true. Also, even if that was true, how do you explain the 701, the 705 sector one? Like you still have to, you still know that call ended east of that intersection. So th- there's no way around that. There's no expert in the world that will get up on the stand and say that 713 call where the final cell face is 707 sector one could show that they were on the highway or headed towards the highway. So that part is concrete. Same thing with the with the voicemail connection on Tower 88. Sector one points almost due east, east, southeast. It's like I said, like on a clock base, 345, not even to four o'clock. It, it's pointed the wrong way for their theory to work. Now, could they do a different drive test and try to show but but my guess would be what I would do as a defense is I I would I would argue against you can't do a drive test in 2023 to right. show up what what the driving conditions were like in 2006. Right. Like like that you can't do that. Right. The intersections aren't even the same anymore. So that, that as far as the burned bodies go, no. I I mean, could they could they bring up another expert that says, "Yes, this shows the body was burning for an hour." I don't think they would they could, but if some expert was willing to do that, they would be wrong. I've done more re- like look up Elaine Pope's work and and some of the studies. Like this wasn't like she just came in and and just did a couple of test burns just for this case. She has done hundreds and hundreds of test burns under every condition and knows exactly from those tests what those bones look like at certain points, and then built in you know some wiggle room either either way. But there's no way that that body was burning any longer than thirty minutes. From what I see in her report and the photos and how it's documented, I don't see any way. And I've Zach has had the displeasure uh-huh. of seeing them. You can, right. 
I don't think there's any way she burned any longer than 20. No, I agree wholeheartedly. When you look at the pictures where she did do a 30-minute burn and what the bones look like. There's a lot more damage. And compare them to Becky's body. There's no way. But, you know, they got – but so let's say they did that. Let's say they found an expert who came in and said, well, I've looked at this and I think that the body – Becky's body burned for an hour. Well, then as the defense, I would say, okay, here's the expert you used. Yes. Five years ago. Yes. And she's going to restate, like, like it's your expert mm-hmm. that now you're saying is wrong because it doesn't fit your narrative. So yes. there's, yeah, yeah. there's, I don't think, I think if these guys were to, are to get, get a new trial, there's, it would be all but impossible. They barely convicted him this time. 10 days of holdouts before finally everyone agreed to vote guilty. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty much what I've got. I just had one last thing. Um, Janiah had been, Thinking about the uh, Murdoch trials, uh, the reason I'm not bringing it up, uh, Janaya, although I seem to be bringing it up. So there's some hypocrisy going on there on my account. <laughs> I love Janaya and I love what she has to say. So I've always like, well, I want to bring it up. But she had mentioned that there's this conversation happening. Again, I'm saying this because you two don't know about the case. But yeah. in this scenario, the, it, it would seem that one person used two different types of guns potentially to commit a murder by himself. Oh, I can answer. This is actually. You saw that? Yes. Great. Okay. It's what she was pointing out was in the Murdoch trial that there was um, some birdshot and buckshot. Yeah. Use use and so, but they still think it was one gun. Yes. And 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 Zach can speak to this too. But well, a one killer is what Janaya had pointed out. Not yeah. Yeah. The thing is, those are both bullets. They're they're shells that shot that are shot out of the same gun. So like right now, if you were to go out to my hunting gun cabin out there and unlock it and pull out. In the shotgun shell section, you could grab two rounds and shove them into my over under 12 gauge. Mm-hmm. And one of them will be a number eight bird shot. And the second one could be a double lot buck out of the same gun. So so that's very different than 12 gauge bird shot shot out of a shotgun and a 40 caliber bullet shot out of a pistol. Mm-hmm. Very correct. Yeah. And, and I mean, like you're. And to have two different rounds on a shotgun is is not very alarming. I mean, that's that happens a lot. Yeah, especially if you're dealing with a hunter, someone who hunts, mm-hmm. because you know, like for me, with with a shotgun, I hunt uh, grouse and woodcock that are that are smaller birds. I hunt pheasant, which require a different shot. I hunt turkey, which is a much bigger shot. It's like a number four shot, uh, and I don't anymore. But some people will hunt deer with them too, where they'll use buckshot. So like. For the same gun, I the only thing I have to do to change to hunt different game is just to change the type of shell I put in. So, so Josh is now saying it's two different guns. It was duck loads and a three hundred blackout, which cannot be fired from the same gun. What is a three hundred blackout? It's an AR style gun. It's just a different change. Oh, a, that's a, a different, different story. Run. Yeah, yeah. If it's if it's buckshot and birdshot, yeah. This is my concern. This is my concern about us having a conversation when you don't have all the information. <laughs> hey, in our defense, Janaea said it was buckshot and birdshot, <laughs> so uh, I was responding to that. Uh, if it was, yeah, if it was, a, if it was, uh, in a, uh, if it was a rifle mm-hmm. and a shotgun, Those yeah, are two different guns, yeah. completely. Yeah. Okay. I don't have anything else. I do uh, want to shout out. Oh gosh, I'm trying to remember who it was last week who had said what's going on with Javi's testimony uh, as a perfect follow-up uh last question so i'm just gonna say remember how someone asked when we would be hearing about uh javi's testimony bob what's up for next week awkward awkward yeah yeah and this and and that's a great time to ask that question Thank before you. i answer were there not was there not a single question about the 1023 voicemail 
No. None. So I must have explained it perfectly. I mean, I, I didn't have a question about it after I listened to it and I didn't see any. So. But yeah. Uh, so now we're, we're I think we've I think we've exhausted the cell phone data at this at this point. Um, the last thing I will say is somebody asked uh, Whitney in the YouTube chat if we could hear from a lawyer about it because they're curious because Robert and Christian already appealed on the cell phone data and it and they didn't win their appeal on that. So it seems like it wouldn't make a difference here. Very different situations, Whitney. Their original appeal was based on the fact that they couldn't prove or disprove anything because the state never requested the sector data. And they they lost that appeal because essentially the judges, you know, I would assume that the judge is like, well, you can't just say it maybe would have helped. And so it, so in this case, and we have heard from actual innocence attorneys who have who have said very clearly what this this would be an ineffective assistance of counsel claim because the defense had access to information and they can show through experts that that information would have shown that their stories line up, that the uh, the drive test by Bodmer was invalid, all the things that we've talked about. So they can show that had they used the sector data, they could have shown all this at trial. That could have changed the outcome of the trial. And it was an error by the defense because they had it the whole time and didn't realize that they had it. So, you know, in a very broad term, they already appealed the, the cell phone evidence and they're appealing in very different claims. The first was they didn't get a, fr- a fair shake at things because they didn't have sector data. The judge says that wouldn't have mattered because no one knew what the sector data actually mm. showed. This is a very different thing. Uh, and with that being said, I think we've done a fantastic, fantabulous job of covering every possible inch of this <laughs> cell phone sector data. I, I actually hate getting off of it, to be honest, because that's like that's where my brain works. Boy, it's like, you Ooh. are one of the few. You yeah. are one of the few to be not wanting to move on. For me, like building like the map and stuff and seeing like actual like like tangible evidence that I can piece together is is was been great. Thank goodness. Thank goodness your brain works that way because it's very, <laughs> very important to this case. So thank you for caring and taking all that time and effort. Well, I honestly, I mean, as a listener, for me, I would much rather see that. I would much rather see the sect of data and you break down the maps than just hear hearsay episodes. Yes. Yeah. Fair enough. Absolutely. So speaking of hearsay episodes, now we're going to go back to <laughs> uh, where we started, where I was going before all this sector data stuff came up. Uh, I had been working on breaking down Javier's testimony and there's, there's been roadblocks because like I said, I was going to break it down. I was like, well, geez, I should compare this with what these other people said. And then I said, well, let's take one. Let's take a break. Let's let's step back and give you the one where we heard from Barbara Wright and all those people up in the area. Mm-hmm. And then we did the sector data. So now I'm coming back to. Javier's testimony that I, I I think I should be able to piece it all together so I can get you the whole, it's 127 pages of testimony. Um, but I think I can piece all that together into one episode, but that's what you're going to be hearing from. So you can learn what Javier said from, you know, compared to what he said in his initial interviews, his follow-up interviews, all the way to what he said at trial, how those compare to what he said previously and how it compares to the other evidence that we have. That's coming up Sunday, and with that, we will close out this show. Thank you guys, everybody, for uh, listening, downloading, supporting us, people in the YouTube uh, chat. Thanks, as always, for joining us and being a part of the show. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, guys.
NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink, and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by me, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnik, Ginger Viola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found in all forms at Bob Ruff Truth. Janet can be found at Janet Varney. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. As for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Janet Varney. And this has been Truth and Justice. This week, we're diving into the information Bob presented this week. Oh, I said that. Let's see that. Try that again. Great. Didn't re- realize that I wrote this week twice in the same sentence. Right. Dumbass. I just wanted to do something different. Can you believe that dumb son of a bitch said that? <laughs> Not nice, Zach. Literally the stupidest thing I've heard in weeks. <laughs> what an idiot. We'll be right <laughs> we're back. We're going to talk about it right after this break. <laughs> now, Janet, you can hit stop on your record now. You never hit stop <gasps> on your record. I can. Thank you for reminding yeah. me. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com.